0: Okay, so let's jump in. If you have a Bible, would you turn to First Corinthians chapter 6? First Corinthians chapter 6 is where you were, you're gonna be. Um, when I watched that video, many of you know that I spent years as a youth pastor, and most of the time, it was really fun. I don't miss getting hit with pillows, Um But there were, and and there were other days where it was a little bit frustrating. Like I remember, I, I remember the first trip I ever did with middle schoolers. We took these kids to a service project in Pittsburgh, and they spent the days out kind of doing mission stuff and working in homes. And then at night, all these kids would come back, and it wasn't just our church's kids, but like several churches. And so the staff, the college students, were like, "How do we entertain these kids?" And they planned a dance. And I thought, well, that's a, that's kind of a fun idea. Let's see how this goes. Sweaty middle schoolers who just got to know each other, let's see what happens. And they put them in a room, and the dance went great. And then they played this, um, like the slow jam song, to which I know we have middle school teachers, and you just know you don't do that. Like, you don't do that at the middle school level. And and most of the kids, it was like the parting of the Red Sea, you know what I mean, where they're daring each other to go ask them to dance. But one of my little guys, like a sixth grade boy, I turn around, and he's dancing uh, very, very close to this girl as a slow jam song. I apparently was meant to be danced by a sixth grade boy with a girl that he just met the day before. And one of our leaders, I was like, Go, and she was on it. She was at that, and she, she grabbed that boy, and, and she came back over laughing, and I said, what happened? And she said, I told him, I said, leave room for Jesus. And she said, he looked at me as sincerely as he could because he had no understanding. He, he was not walking with God, and he looked at her, and he goes, well, if Jesus doesn't want her, can I have her? dead serious. I don't miss those days of youth ministry. The other days I don't miss is when I would get a call from a parent that said, can we have a meeting? Because if we were having a meeting, teachers, you know that like typically parents aren't like, hey, thanks for all the awesome work you're doing. It was, let's sit down and I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong. And so we sat down and this girl in our youth ministry, she wasn't there at the meeting, but she was so sweet. She was a sweet little homeschool girl who was just incredible, had the best heart in the world. And we sit down and the mom says, I just have some concerns. I was like, well, I figured. And she said, that I have some serious concerns because when a youth pastor has tattoos, you ready? I only had like two at that point, and they were, they were, they were small. And she was like, when the youth pastor has that, and both youth pastor's wives have body piercings in their noses, she said, this is the most worldly place I bring my daughter to, to which I, in all my pastoral care and wisdom, said, that's not a good thing. And It wasn't my highlight reel, but it was a moment that was unkind, but I thought about that this week as we are in this series called Wonky, right? And we're in this series where we're looking at how do you follow Jesus when you don't like the church, like, if you're new with us here at New Community, I'll just tell you right up front, I'm the wonkiest one in this place, and so if you can get past me, you're, you're going to be okay. But, but what, what I think we've been realizing over the course of this series is that many of us have had bad, hard, painful, crazy, chaotic church experiences, and we are taking the time over these weeks to build a survival guide for those of you who would say, I don't have a problem with Jesus. It's the church that I can't stand. It's the church where I've seen people be too hypocritical or people be too judgmental or it gets too political or too condescending. Whatever it is, we feel it. And my question as we start today is this. In that moment, that, that sweet lady said, this is too worldly. How many of you have ever had that word thrown at you? Or that word spoken to you or something shared with you, it just seems too worldly. Maybe you've talked with someone and they've said, it's just too worldly. The music you're listening to is too worldly. the show you were watching is too worldly, the beer that you're drinking is too worldly. I don't know what unworldly beer is. There's too many material possessions, it's too worldly. When that mother said that to me, when she identified our youth group as a worldly place, what she was passive, aggressively communicating was that she couldn't fathom how I would have tattoos as a youth pastor, how two youth pastor's wives thought body piercing their noses were okay. What she really meant by worldly were the things that she didn't want her daughter doing, partaking in in practicing, saying, or engaging. Now, here's the problem with this. In every church that I've ever been a part of, in every ministry that I've ever helped lead, in every Christ follower I've ever dealt with, here's what I've realized. When we start to speak of the worldly things, when we start to call things worldly, we all, every single one of us, tends to mean something different. Some of us think that if we watch R-rated movies, or some of you grew up, it was PG-13. You just don't cross into the numbers zone. Like, if you watch those movies, then you're too worldly. But those folks were setting those rules and maybe gossiping in the pews of the church more than anybody else. Some of us think that that music that doesn't come straight off of K-Love is too worldly, but these folks are also desperate for the new episode of Game of Thrones to come out. Pick your toes up. I'm coming. Others think worldly means being on the wrong side of the political aisle. Some of you think that if you touch alcohol, you're headed straight for hell, but you have an addiction to Starbucks and McDonald's that's going to kill you long before the beer. It's just going to happen. You see, we have this concept of worldliness like the mother that I talked to, but most times, I would argue every time, it is self-defined rather than God-defined. We're defining it by self and not by God, and that's a problem, and I'll tell you why. Because in this room right now are some folks who would say, I don't follow Jesus for that reason. I don't want I don't, to say, I don't say amen, but I'd amen that because I've been in churches and they had too many rules. Don't drink, don't listen to bad music, don't watch bad stuff. We used to say, don't drink, don't chew, don't date the girls who do. <laughs> Hang on to that. Don't dress other than in long skirts and turtlenecks. Modest is the hottest. You ever heard that sermon? That's a good youth pastor line. Whatever it was, you were fed a narrative that said, if you broke any of the self-defined worldliness rules, God would be upset with you, God would be angry at you, God would be disappointed in you, and God might even throw you out of his place. And you understand this. Many of you, you would say, I'm not a Christian because of these very things. See, the problem is when the idea of worldliness is self-defined, there's no consistent standard of how to follow Christ. Some things are okay, some things are not, and as you walk up the street with six churches on it, you have to figure out what rules exist in each church, what is defined as worldly in each church, what is not defined as worldly in each church. And for the non-Christian, listen, I'm, t- I'm speaking to those who don't follow Christ, for your friends who don't follow Christ, for you. You would say, how can those churches all serve the same Jesus if the rules keep Changing. It's just wonky. You might not say wonky. Now, here's the reality where this has left us as a broader culture, and it echoes back centuries. You see, this debate is not new. This is not just a Christian debate. This is actually a religious debate, a philosophical debate, and that has touched many worldviews, many faiths. You see, what has happened is we have these views. One of these views I want to represent to you with my biggest weight in my house. You now understand why I'm small. The other debate that I want to represent to you is with these baby party hats. I asked my kids for party hats and they gave me puppy party hats. There are two words philosophically that we could echo back to. The first is a word called hedonism. Hedonism is a view that says go after pleasure, maximize your pleasure, minimize pain. Whatever it costs you, get as much pleasure, as much happiness, as much instant gratification, as much joy as you can. Some of you are like, I'm at that table, let's go there. Then there's this view called aestheticism that's spelled funky, but what it talks about, what it echoes is this Greek word of exercise or training. It's the table of discipline. It's the table that says when it comes to things that matter, we have to discipline ourselves. We have to get rid of all the physical pleasure. We have to avoid the bad parts of the world. And so we have these two tables that we're going to talk about today. But the thing is, among these two tables, for every religious system, for every philosophical system, for every church you've ever been in, we function somewhere on the spectrum between these two tables. So some of us drift into churches. We love the party churches. Everything's okay. Just do what you want. And then some of us go to the church or you grew up in the church or you have nightmares about the church that said there's 10,000 rules and if you break one of them, God's done with you. No one has amened me yet. I figured at that point we might get one. And so these two views create this spectrum that relates to us when we talk about the churches that we've experienced that have hurt us, that have seemed chaotic, that we've struggled with because most believers view somewhere on this scale. You could say it this way. Every church I've ever experienced, every church you've ever been in, has some kind of view of what they would put on this table and what they would put on this table. And depending on where you show up, what's on the table might change. What is too worldly? What's just enough? What's okay? What's not? Are you with me? Are you awake today? 11 a.m., three of you. All right, it is super common. Now, here's the thing. When I talk about the mom who criticized the tattoos and the piercings, many of you, most of you in the room are like, that's ridiculous. Why would she think that? And you scoff at it. However, it's super common today also that many of us want to say all of our Christianity belongs on this table. Everything is okay. There are no guidelines. There are no designs. There are no things that we should keep off of this table. And the problem with that is we're missing some of the biblical pieces of this 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 debate. So trying to figure out life between these two tables is incredibly difficult. But here's the good news. This is not a new debate. This is a debate that the church has screwed up for centuries. Yay! Here we are. When it comes to navigating, whether we should spend our time at this completely open table with everything we want to have and do and think and say and be, or we want to spend our table at the table of rules and discipline and restraint and all that, this is not a new conversation for those who would follow Jesus and specifically for the body of believers that calls themselves the church. In fact... If you were to read most of the New Testament, if you were to read the letters of Paul that he wrote to the churches as the pastor, as the church planter, he deals with this, I believe, in almost every single book, this tension between legalism and freedom. In fact, I had a really hard time not trying to preach to you the entire New Testament today. I didn't. I only picked four chapters, so you'll get out of here by 1.30, okay? Okay. He confronted it, and he confronted it with the tension between truth and grace. And I want to pick up today in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is where we're going to be. Paul is writing a letter to this church, and he's dealing with two incredible topics that I know all of you love. And so we're going to remove our weight, and we're going to remove our, well, we're going to move the party hats to the other table. And I'll explain why in just a minute. Because the two topics that Paul deals with are sex and food. Amen? Amen? Are we ready? We're going to dig in. 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse 12. Here we go. Paul says, in quotations, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. He says, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So he says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, Some of you have a hard time keeping up with my sermons. I just want to show you that Paul was a little ADD as well because here's what he's dealing with. We've talked about food. We've talked about sex. We've talked about prostitutes. We've talked about Jesus raising from the dead, and we've got a whole thing coming together. And I would say, what in the world is he talking about? So let me break this down for you. Apparently, in this church in Corinth, in a city that had hundreds and maybe more temples built to pagan gods, that the people of the Corinthian church were actually going to these temples and they had at these temples hired prostitutes who would stand there as temple prostitutes and they would engage the men who came to worship at the temple. And Paul's saying, the way that you're doing this, you're showing up in church on Sunday mornings or whenever they met. He's saying, you're showing up and we're calling you out on it and saying this shouldn't be happening and you're quoting your culture. You're quoting the, the cliche of your culture that says everything is permissible for me. I can do everything I want. It's kind of like the, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I can do everything I want. It doesn't matter. And Paul says, you have a right to do anything, but it's not always beneficial. Paul's engaging the two tables. He says, of course you have freedom. Of course you can, you, you can live freely and do whatever you want, but there's also discipline that's required because not everything is beneficial. He says, this table of food and this table of sex, we have to deal with. So I'm gonna deal with the sex table and the food table today. Are you ready? Let's set our sex table first. <laughs> and I'm gonna say that a lot. So you gotta deal with it in your uncomfortable level. So it's candlelit, of course, right? Are you with me? That's, that's the sex table. Some of you are like, really? No? I... <laughs> you gotta have chocolate, ladies. Amen? Okay. Good bottle of wine, if you grew up Baptist, we got sparkling grape juice. (laughs) And you have your sex table set. And I want to say to you from the outset of today, it's important to recognize this is Paul's theology. Now listen, you can argue this, you can argue with me, it's fine, but Paul's theology when it comes to the sex table is not unclear. In this passage, he makes a clear point. The sexual practices of this culture engaging prostitutes is a sin committed in their body. And their body is a temple of the Lord and it's dishonoring to God in themselves. And then in 40 chapters, in chapter 7, I don't have time to go through these. I'm not going to. We've preached this before. He makes a clear and honest case of biblical marriage as faithfulness between a man and a woman, celibacy and singleness, and that's the sex table. Now, here's what I know just happened. Many of you just checked out because you walked in here and you heard me talking about wonky churches and too many rules and legalism, and then I started talking about the rules of sex, just like that, pastor, you remember. And I want to say to you, I get it. I know you're tired of hearing this because you know what? I'm tired of saying it. I'm tired of it too. I feel like every once in a while we pick up, I pick up my Old Testament prophet robe and I'm like, stop it, like honor God with your bodies. This is the way that he meant it. It's one man, it's one woman, it's inside a marriage, period. So I will share that again and I'll simply ask this about this table because here's what I'm saying to you. This table has a design. Now, many of you go to rules. These are rules. These are bad rules. God set the rules. The rules don't work. This is a design, and the design is to give you the maximum amount of freedom within this design, that this table is set for intimacy between one man, one woman, sharing together, life together, their intimate heartbeat, their romance, their passions with each other. And I would say this, most of you agree with that. Most of you believe that because when your husband sits down to your sex table, if you're uncomfortable with that, we say intimacy table. Let's be really Christian. And he says, honey, the Steelers are playing. You don't want the Steelers at your sex table. I thought there'd be some amen to that. When she sits down and says... You just have to hear all about my work spouse, my work husband, he's so great. And that, By the way, I hate that phrase. Please stop using that phrase. God gave you a husband, you don't need another one. Let's work on that first. We've got this together. This is a design, and this is what belongs at the table. You don't put something else on the table that doesn't belong to the table. Now, many of you are going, well, why are you talking so much about sex? Well, let's, let's change the thing, okay? There's other biblical pieces where the table and the design are clear. God says to the Israelites, you will have one God. You will have no other gods before me. That's the design of this table. That's the boundary of this table. You should not commit adultery. You should not lust. You should not gossip. You should not lie. You should not steal. You should not cheat. That's the table. That's the design. Paul says when it comes to your most intimate relationships, that's the way it's designed. And you know how I know that to be true? Because it doesn't matter to me socially, politically, economically, relationally, all the things that you want to wrestle through and all that. When I sit down with someone who has taken this design and broadened the table or left the table, and I say to you, how's it working for you? Has sex outside of marriage? Has it made your life better or just more complicated? Typically, what I hear in response, often through emotions and tears, is it's made my life way more complicated. That's the reality. Of God's design. Let's pause on that table, and let's look at the other table, because Paul talks about this as well, and we all love this table, right? Some of you are like, I don't want to talk about that table. We don't, we don't say that word, right? The food table. Can we get behind the food table? Amen? Yes. All right, 1 Corinthians 8. Let's start at verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Now, you have to understand this jump that Paul makes. Can we bring that verse up? Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Paul spends a whole chapter in chapter 7 dealing with sex and relationships and marriage and intimacy. And then he jumps and says, Now, about food. (laughs) I know you all want to talk about food, about food sacrificed to idols. He says, This. We all possess knowledge but knowledge puffs up while love builds up okay here's what he says when it comes to food there's something different about this table verse two those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know but whoever loves god is known by god so paul, paul spends this chapter dealing with sex and now he says let's talk about food because food is different he could have very easily said when it comes to food now and, and here's the context they were going to these temples they are engaging in prostitution. At the same time, the temples are serving food, and they're serving food that the pagan worshipers had brought and sacrificed to the idols. This is mind-blowing to me. They bring food to the temple to worship a false god. The leaders of those temples recycle it and say, hey, let's serve it in our restaurant and make a buck. And Paul says, let's talk about this food sacrificed to idols. And he says, this table is not the same as love. There's no, there's no set rule. There's some, there's some grace in this. Look at verse four. So then, about eating food, sacrifice to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called, quote, gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, what he's talking about is not that there actually are other gods, but that in the Corinthian culture, they understood their leaders, their heroes to be lords or gods. He says, for us, we're six, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now this is so good because Paul says, you got this table, let's deal with this table. Now he says, this table is a little bit different. He says, let's talk about this other table, the table with idle food. And he says, first of all, let's just understand there's no real other gods. So that fear that you have, are we giving something to the other god? There's no gods. You need, you need to reframe The question, he's actually countering the polytheistic culture that worshiped many gods. Verse 7 of chapter 8 says, But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Remember he said... You have this knowledge that understands there's no other gods, but understand this has to be rooted in love. Then he says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Then check this out, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So let's define these two tables. Paul says you got the sex table, you got the design table. This is the way God intended it. Don't invite things or people to your table that don't belong then he says you've got a different table when it comes to food. So I brought some food. First thing I did this morning was order two hash browns at McDonald's. They were blown away. Someone would just order two hash browns. Why don't you order sausage? I told him I didn't want sausage. We moved on. Some of you at your food table have no problem with putting McDonald's on the food table. You have no problem. You love you some McDonald's sweet tea, amen. Some of you are actually repulsed that there's a McDonald's bag in the same room that you're in. Some of you, if you go out for a run and you get really thirsty, you're going to be Gatorade Frost, crisp and cool. That's who you're going to be. But some of you would say, running? You're crazy. I'm a rock star. (laughs) And that's where your food falls. Some of you say, well, we are healthy in my family. We are skinny pop. We are vegan, gluten-free, organic, all natural, And you're going to write a book, and you're going to change the world because even Jesus was vegan. And I just want to say to you, I'm not going to buy your book because I like meat. Because some of you say, forget the skinny pop. We're going Ruffles, mozzarella, and marinara, which has to be healthy because that's all (laughs) real. And some of you have very strong feelings about spam or no spam in your life. See, Paul says at the food table, there's room for options. There's room for freedom. There's some kind of grace and some kind of gray area that remains over this. He said this, this is different than the design table. This is different than the intimacy table. There's something different here. And when you deal with these two tables, you have to deal with freedom. You have to deal with what theologians would call Christian liberty. See, the food table has these areas where there's this thing called Christian liberty, and it ultimately comes down to your understanding of freedom, of grace, and of conscience. Now, for them, in this day, it was food, right? It was food sacrificed to idols. But aren't you glad that we don't have that today? No churches debate over whether you should have alcohol. No churches debate over how we should feel politically about certain things. See, we have gray areas in our culture, don't we? You wrestle with these things. You wrestle with the language that you use or the media. Wow, what, what should you watch? What kind of content should you take in? How should you process these things? See, there's a lot of room on this table, Paul says. And he says, what happens on your table? If your table, you would say, I will never have spam on my table. Then that's a matter of your conscience, but you don't get to say no spam for any follower of Christ's table. Somebody tweet that. That's just memorable. <laughs> See, we have room on our table for different perspectives, different intakes, different outputs, and there's Christian liberty in that. But now watch what Paul does as he teaches about this in chapter 8, verse 9. He says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Be careful that the way you practice your freedom does not cause someone else to stumble. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You go, this spam, it's so good for me. I can eat it, I love it, I have no problems with this. This does not interfere with my relationship with God. And someone who struggles with that is, watching and goes how could he eat spam he's the pastor we could replace this couldn't we and now I've caused Paul says you've caused them to be wounded in their relationship with Christ see this is about freedom and freedom is an incredibly difficult word isn't it we all want to be free people we all want to lay claim to freedom as a high value we all want to say our nation was founded on freedom but we sure can't agree on what it means Like, think about it this way. Are you free to drive the wrong way on all those stupid one way streets in Charleston? You absolutely are free, right, Matt Gregory? You can do that. But you're going to interfere with someone else's freedom and eventually your own if you do that. I would say it this way the freedom of your fist stops with the bridge of my nose. That's where your freedom ends. And this is how Paul shifts this conversation about the food table. He says, food isn't that important. Don't worry about what you eat if your conscience is good with it. But then he raises the conversation to say once again, it's all about love. Be careful that the exercise of your rights, your freedom, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. He says, as a Christ follower, your freedom always has effects on the people around you I think Paul would say this don't wound someone else's opportunity to encounter Jesus because you are spiritually more mature than they are I'll give you a perfect example of this when I was in seminary our 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 professor told us he was a German man now if you don't know this Germans have a certain affinity for beer are you with me not crappy beer good beer and they have this affinity, and my German professor told us, he said, when he took the job at the seminary and the seminary hired him, they said, we, we just want you to know, understand our kind of staff, faculty code of conduct. We ask our faculty not to drink. That's kind of a principle that we practice. They were very grace-filled about it. Now, that's like telling a German not to breathe, okay? And he said, he said, I can honor that if you admit that you're the weaker brother, <laughs> which is great. The entire board had to stop of the seminary and go, okay, we're the weaker brothers, <laughs> And he said, then I'll honor that because that's the only biblical principle when it comes to freedom that we have to understand that. But don't let your freedom stand in somebody else's way. Friends, if you're hosting something and you're inviting someone who's in recovery into your community and you're drinking it up and enjoying that, then you may cause them to stumble. And that's something you have to be deeply aware of because your freedom is not ever just about your individual rights. It's about how you extend the love of God, the grace of God to someone else. This is what Paul goes on to say in chapter 9. He says, though I'm free and though I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, we this is the part we don't like to talk about when we talk about freedom in Christ, that you're free, you should become a slave. He says, so to the Jews, I became like a Jew. You'd never find a Jew eating in a temple You never find them eating food sacrificed to idols. So if I'm with the Jews and I'm trying to lead them to Christ, I'm never going to eat in that place. Now, does that make Paul hypocritical or humble? I think he turns and he serves. He says, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. He says, and I love this verse, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some, and I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I just love that because what Paul is saying, he says, forget about the rules. Forget about all the perceived rules that you think you have. He says, I will do whatever it takes to reach any person who doesn't know Christ. I'll go where they are because this is the principle. Free people always use their freedom to free others. That's what free people do. Free people always extend their freedom for the sake of freedom to others. Paul turns the very act of eating our food into missionary work. Now, I can get behind that. Tacos are a missionary endeavor. Let's go. He says the church is called to be everything for everyone. So, friends, how do your meals proclaim Jesus? How does the practice of your freedom proclaim Jesus? There may be some things that you need to remove from your table. There may be some things that you need to add to your table because you've been walking in legalism for so long. That's the freedom of this table. And then he returns to his opening statement. He says in chapter 10, verse 23, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. He says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. He says, for the, or the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Can we get behind this? God allowed us to make skinny pop, and he allowed us to make spam. Yeah. <laughs> and that means there's freedom at work in the life of the Christ Follower, but you better understand that your freedom is to honor other people. So the problem for Paul, listen, he says this design, this sex stuff, this intimacy, this relationship, this design of how God has done this, that's clear. Keep your table free. Keep your table free of the invasions, the intrusions, the distractions that take away from the most intimate relationship you've ever been handed. Don't ever step to this table without the design that God has put on it. Don't ever allow yourself to come to this table. Don't put spam on the table of intimacy. Don't put stuff there that doesn't belong. Those of you that are single, don't engage this table in these intimate ways because God has created a design. Some of you are like, it's a rule. Okay, it's a rule. It's a design. And it's meant to maximize your freedom. It's meant to maximize the ability you have to engage relationships in the purest way that God allowed. But then when you get to this table and all those other peripheral issues that don't matter, There's a lot of freedom. You can put what you want on the table. You can take away what you want on the table. If your table says only ruffles, great, go for it. If your table says a good red wine and nice cheese, go for it. Because God is not hung up on that, so why should we be? That's who he is. And so I want to show you one more thing as we start to close. We've got these two tables, but I think there's one more piece you have to understand. Because when it comes to these two tables, they're not disconnected. These two tables are actually deeply, intentionally, and purposefully connected. And God says when it comes to these two tables, you can't ever just separate these things because these tables, the way you live your freedom as a follower of Christ and church, the way you practice your freedom in your time together, the way that you engage the rules of your culture and the values that you hold, they are going to show, they are going to demonstrate your freedom to each other. I can't get this to stay here. And it matters what you do. Because see, right in the middle of the connection between these two tables, we as believers in Christ, and some of you know this, you're trying to practice this, and you're trying to understand this, you're trying to get out of the legalism that you grew up with, and you're trying to restore the purity that you feel like you've lost. And we stand in the middle of these two tables with, whole, with the rope in our hands because it's the rope of responsibility. It's the rope of responsibility that says, I will walk in the best freedom that God has designed for me. I will not put rules or legalism on things that God never meant to be legalistic, and I will live in the design that God has given us as a gift. And because of my responsibility, I'll actually, I ran out of tables, I'll actually set a third table Because the third table is the table of Christ. And when I walk in freedom, when I walk in responsibility, when I become all things to all people and I practice the freedom that God has given me, then I'm setting the table for those who don't know Christ to be invited to a table where it doesn't matter if they've blown this. It doesn't matter if they've messed this up. It doesn't matter how broken they are. It doesn't matter how they've identified themselves. They're still welcome at that table. It doesn't matter what kind of legalism they've come out of. It doesn't matter what the church told them about how angry God was at them. They've been invited to a table where the Savior of the universe is being lived out in our freedom and because they see that they go, wait, you're saved? You're someone who understands Jesus? You've been welcome to the table? Then maybe I'm welcome at the table too because you held your responsibility well because you walked in freedom. You said I'll set the table for someone else to follow Christ because my freedom was never about me. My freedom was always meant to set someone else free. That's what it's about. That's who we're called to be. That we invite people to a table where grace is resounds so I'm going to invite the band to come and I want you to hear this scripture as we close in Revelation 3 this is what Jesus says he says here I am I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice now listen if you hear my voice Jesus says and you open the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me you know what this paints in my head this paints Jesus sitting down at this table and going, spam, really? Okay. That's how you're gonna connect with me? Okay. I'm there. I'm good. I, I, I get it. I know you're coming out of I, Maybe that church kind of blew it for you. They were wonky. They messed it up. I don't like that word wonky, but, but we'll go with it. But they messed that up. They gave you too many rules. You just feel like God's been mad at you the whole life. I, I'd like to have some ruffles with you. I'd like to sit down and kind of talk over some of that stuff. I'd like to hang out with you and kind of dismantle some of those rules because God's never been as angry as you think he's been. I'd like to invite you out of that. And then I think, maybe Jesus steps up to this table. And it's funny because we think the same perception at both of these tables. We think God's mad at us. And I think God's sitting down going, man, I know this is hurt. I know that your loss of purity and the way you've practiced relationships, listen, I'm not angry I'm heartbroken. Remember that I'm the Savior. Jesus says that wept. I wept. Remember that I'm the Savior. That that I'd like to be your most intimate partner. The only other person who belongs at this intimacy table is Jesus. And I'd like to help you restore this. I'd like to put some magic back into this. Your marriage is crumbling. I get that. It's because you've invited things to this table that don't belong there, or you've taken things away from this table that you should never have taken away. You say you're single and and, and you feel like you can't recover what you've lost when it comes to your purity, when it comes to your hurt, when it comes to your brokenness. Guess what? I'm the God who makes all things new. And there's always hope. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and you open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with that person. And they'll dine with me. And so we're going to pray together. And I just want to pray for three groups of people. First, I want to pray for those who would say, this intimacy table, this design table, this table of relationships, the way God meant it to be, I've kind of messed that whole table up. I've tried to yank the tablecloth out from under it and not spill anything and it's all broken. And God, I just want to pray for those brothers and sisters, those sons and daughters of yours who would say, when it comes to the design of relationships in our lives, God, and it may not be sex, it may be just broken friendships, it may just be broken marriages, it may be just hurt caused from abuse and fear and shame and anger and bitterness and things that we know when it comes to our relationships, we just have a really hard time letting go of. And so God, I pray for my friends. I pray that they would experience your grace, God, that even in this room, they would feel you pulling up a chair beside them to say, let's reset your table. Let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about the fact that there was a woman who was caught in the very act of prostitution and I didn't throw a stone at her. I didn't condemn her. I gave her new life. I said, Father, I pray that that happens in this place right now. And God, I pray for the second group who would say, "I've, I've, I've had too many rules on my table. I've had a hard time getting out from under legalism and getting out from this feeling of feeling like God has just ticked off at me all the time. And I feel like that's what Christianity meant was rules. And, and, and God, would you just show up in their lives and say, man, there's grace, there's freedom, there's so many things that don't matter. You can just rest in that. You can rest in that. And then, Father, I just want to pray for those who are here who would say, you know what, I don't follow Jesus. Maybe I've never been a Christ follower. But this table of grace, this third table of grace makes a lot of sense. And today, I just know clearly that I need to follow you. And in our church, this is what we do. Nobody's looking around. I'm praying for you. I am not going to embarrass you. I just want to affirm that that's going on in your heart. And I would just love if you'd make eye contact with me. If you're saying today... I want to just put my faith in Jesus. I've never done that, and today is the moment that I feel like this table of grace is finally for me. And if that's you, just make eye contact. I'm going to pray for you, and that's going to be the end of this prayer. I promise anybody. Amen. Amen. So if that's you, just pray this in your heart and your mind in your own words. God,
1: I want to cross this
0: line of faith. I want to know what the table of grace means, and I want to take steps to deepen my relationship with you. Father, show me. Show me how to go after you. Show me what it means to be loved by you, to have a new identity in you, and to walk in freedom and love and truth and hope so that this world gets better because I'm a free person. Father, we believe your son died on the cross. We believe he rose again, and today we put our trust in him. Lord, it's in your name we pray. And everybody said...